call upon God. An invitation for God to come, not just prayer. One calls him by being devoted, in humility, to living every principle he has taught through his messengers and in his scriptures. It's not a laundry list of to-dos. It is meekness and prayerful watching, humbling oneself and accepting what his spirit will advise you to do. When he testifies that a principle is true, one should accept it, no matter the effect it may have upon one's life. Look for God alone to provide guidance and understanding. Change your life, but never abandon his truths. Call, listen, and obey what you are told. Never close that line of communication. Don't trust a message that does not come from him. See the glossary entry, Cry Unto the Lord. Casting Pearls Before Swine The Improper Disclosure of Sacred Knowledge Profaning sacred knowledge by disclosing it to the unprepared or unworthy. One gains the Lord's confidence by showing the Lord he is willing to keep the things which are sacred as holy things before him. And so it is with sacred things. They can be learned, but they cannot be taught. Those who are willing to receive them, however, will receive them. But only when they are prepared to respect the limits which should always separate the sacred from the profane. Putting jewelry on pigs is no more appropriate today than it was when Christ advised against it. When entrusted with sacred things, you must respect them. If you cannot respect their sacred nature, you are not a candidate to receive them. Honor the type, and you prove you will honor the reality. Dishonor the type, and you prove you are not worthy of the reality. God will not be mocked in large measure by keeping the mockers away from his presence. The nature of their forfeiture is far greater and takes place far earlier than they suspect. They forfeit here and now the chance to receive the second comforter. If you fail to respect a covenant made with God to keep knowledge sacred and apart from the world, then you cannot hope to receive sacred knowledge from God through revelation and visitations. Joseph Smith said, The reason we do not have the secrets of the Lord revealed unto us is because we do not keep them but reveal them. We do not keep our own secrets but reveal our difficulties to the world, even to our enemies, then how would we keep the secrets of the Lord? Words of Joseph Smith, page 81. Elsewhere Joseph admonished, If God gives you a manifestation, keep it to yourselves. Teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith, pages 91. The second comforter is for one's individual comfort and instruction. Not for public display or to gratify one's pride or serve one's vain ambition. Sacred things tend to lose their luster as they are profaned by being made common. Just as the white snow tends to stain the longer it is trodden underfoot by men, so also does the purity of revelation become denigrated by being revealed without regard to the audience's preparation and worthiness to learn of sacred things. This is a binding limitation and an essential part of the process. To be qualified, one must be someone who can be trusted to keep sacred things sacred. Of course, when required to testify of something by the Lord, the Lord's insistence upon that testimony always takes precedence. The general rule is you keep them to yourself. The exception is when the Lord constrains you to do otherwise.
cast out. Even if you know someone has violated the commandment, ye shall not cast him out from among you. 3 Nephi 8, paragraph 9. Instead, the Lord places on his disciples the burden of making intercession for him, praying unto the Father in Christ's name for such a man. For the Lord reminds us that, if it so be that he repenteth and is baptized in his name, then the man's repentance will take care of his failure. Notice the burden on his disciples. What does it mean to minister unto him who has transgressed? What does it mean to pray for him unto the Father? This again testifies of how serious the Lord is about how kind and patient his followers are with others. How long are you to bear with the offender, hoping for his repentance? When do you decide that he is determined to repent not? What does it mean, after you have determined the man will not repent, that he shall not be numbered among my people? Now, even if you think you have a basis for deciding all this against the man, nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out of your synagogues or your places of worship. Did you see that? We are not to forbid even the man who is intent upon destroying the Lord's people from our places of worship. What selfless behavior is this? Enduring persecution. It is as if the Lord expects his followers to bless those who curse them, to do good to them who despitefully use them. Why such patience? Because ye know not, but what they will return and repent and come unto me with full purpose of heart, and I shall heal them, and ye shall be the means of bringing salvation unto them. If there is a chance for repentance, the Lord wants us to bear with, succor and uplift the non-repentant soul who drinks damnation. The question then arises about what a fellowship should do when a predator or threatening individual comes among them. Apparently, some people think that you must allow anyone to participate, no matter how argumentative or threatening they behave. The adulterous and predatory almost always cannot be reformed and must be excluded. They will victimize and destroy. We are commanded to cast out those who steal, love, and make a lie, commit adultery, and refuse to repent. We have been instructed, you shall not kill. He that kills shall die. You shall not steal, and he that steals and will not repent shall be cast out. You shall not lie. He that lies and will not repent shall be cast out. You shall love your wife with all your heart and shall cleave unto her and none else, and he that looks upon a woman to lust after her shall deny the faith and shall not have the spirit, and if he repent not he shall be cast out. You shall not commit adultery, and he that commits adultery and repents not shall be cast out. And he that commits adultery and repents with all his heart, and forsakes and does it no more, you shall forgive him. But if he does it again, he shall not be forgiven, but shall be cast out. You shall not speak evil of your neighbor or do him any harm. You know my laws, they are given in my scriptures. He that sins and repents not shall be cast out. If you love me, you shall serve me and keep all my commandments. TNC 26, paragraph 6, emphasis added. This is still binding. If your fellowship includes those who ought to be cast out, you have the obligation to do so rather than encouraging evil by tolerating it. Be patient, but be firm. 
If a person refuses to repent and forsake sins, end fellowship with them and invite penitent others who are interested in practicing obedience and love. Christ's gospel is not impractical. It is designed to give those who seek righteousness to be able to achieve it. Tolerance and compassion are needed. But tolerance and compassion do not include acceptance of sin, particularly the sins listed in the above revelation. One should not go out of his or her way to uncover the sins of others. But if they wear their sins openly, you have an obligation to cast them out. From the blog post, Predators, March 6, 2019. Cephas A name which is, by interpretation, a seer or a stone. When Christ gave Simon a new name, it was the Aramaic Kepa which, when translated into the Greek P, Etros, is also defined as rock or stone. Ceremony of Recognition In 3 Nephi 5, paragraphs 5 to 6, the Nephites were asked to perform a ceremony of recognition and witnessing. They first felt his side. To do this they embraced the Lord, for they could not feel his side without embracing him. Embracing him is an essential part of the ceremony of recognition. Ceremony and holiness are connected with each other. All encounters with God are, in one way or another, a ceremony. Having embraced the Lord and felt his side, the witnesses were asked to take a step back and feel his hands. Feeling the Lord's hands is also a part of this ceremonial process. At an arm's length, holding his hands, they felt the marks of the nails. Then, having touched these sacred emblems of the atonement, they were permitted to kneel and feel the prince in his feet. This part of the ceremony is the easiest for men to observe. For kneeling at his feet is the natural position for anyone who has witnessed for themselves the price he paid on their behalf and feels the love within him. This is ceremony, and this is ritual, but it employs such rich witnesses in the body of the Lord as to be convincing beyond all doubt that he is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Deliverer, and the Holy One of Israel. See also the glossary entry, Sacred Embrace. Chains of Hell And they that will harden their hearts, to them is given the lesser portion of the word until they know nothing concerning his mysteries, and then they are taken captive by the devil and led by his will down to destruction. Now this is what is meant by the chains of hell, Alma 9, paragraph 3. See also the glossary entry, taken captive by the devil. Charity the pure love of Christ, Moroni 7, paragraph 9. The Apostle Paul elevated charity, or the pure love of Christ, to such high importance that salvation itself depends upon a person's charity. See 1 Corinthians 1, paragraph 51. It is through grace that one obtains charity. It is through charity that one can bless others. One cannot bless anyone or hold priesthood designed to bless, not curse, unless they have charity. This is never given unless the recipient is willing to do things he would rather not, thereby offering himself as a sacrifice to God. 
No one is trusted by God to hold this honor unless he will subordinate his will to the will of the Father. Charity cannot be manufactured, but only bestowed, and Moroni directs us to pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love, which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son Jesus Christ, Moroni 7, paragraph 9. Charity is sometimes viewed as an emotional or deeply felt connection that seems unattainable with a stranger, but something that is capable to be done for your wife, husband, children, or your parents, someone with whom you are intimately connected. But it doesn't appear, from the example of Christ, that his willingness to die on behalf of others meant that he had to feel emotionally connected with them in order to do so. He forgave the Romans that were nailing him to the cross. This was not the traditional definition of love. Instead, it was a commitment, a determination, to do good despite the opposition or hindrance of anyone else. The very people he went into the temple and provoked with his woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, Matthew 10, Discourse, deliberately controlling the timing of their outrage so that he would be sacrificed at the appropriate time during the Passover, were the same people on whose behalf he also died. He was committed to giving his life to others as an act of charity, as an act of service, and as an act of kindness in a way that demonstrates what charity really is. Charity is a fixed determination to do something on the behalf of others. Whether they appreciate it, whether they love you in return or not, charity is simply doing what needs to be done. The mistreatment that Nephi received at the hands of his older brothers did not change whether or not he had charity towards his older brothers, even though he knew that, for the safety of his own wife, children, offspring, and compadres, he needed to separate from his brothers. Nephi only ever had charity for them. Charity is a determination to live a certain way and to not allow oneself to be overcome by the jealousies, envies, and all the negative things that make it so easy to excuse giving kindness to others. In a very real sense, charity is trying to see others in the same way that the Father sees them, even if that generosity is not reciprocated. Even if they despise and abuse. Even if they speak all manner of evil against one falsely. Living the kind of life that has charity, the pure love of Christ, and it is a determination. A vigor. A resolution. A firm, fixed determination to abide a certain standard, being committed to the well-being of one's fellow man, even if one's fellow man is not committed at all in a reciprocal way. Do it for the sake of righteousness. Don't do it for the sake of recognition. Recognition rarely comes, except maybe posthumously, to the truly charitable. It's an approach and a value that one assigns to the lives of others that allows one to do good to them even if they refuse to do good back. It's the only way that one can ever eradicate the kind of jealousies, envies, and strife that produce war, conflict, and injured feelings. The world is plagued by the absence of charity, and the best evidence of that is the presence of conflict, fighting, and hurt feelings. If I have charity towards someone who despises and abuses me, then their attitude towards me is irrelevant. Even if they want to spend time berating me, I don't waste any time either considering or being motivated by that. I'm motivated by something else.
Blessed are the peacemakers. Well, why are they peacemakers? Because they are willing to charitably proceed in a world that is riddled with conflict. There's no room for envy in the charitable approach. It's not puffed up. It's not seeking its own. It's really trying to please God and serve Him. And not to serve Himself. It is the greatest, because if we had charity, we could live in peace with one another. Even if we have any number of unresolved issues that exist between one another, we can still live in peace with one another. Even if we absolutely disagree on a number of issues we think are fundamental, we could still live in peace with one another if we had charity. Joseph Smith once remarked that the problem with councils and conferences is that we wouldn't agree to hold our disagreements long enough in order to reach a proper resolution. We have to be willing to allow for differences as we search for the solution. Sometimes the solution requires years of differing opinions, differing viewpoints, differing ways of approaching things. That's not evil. It's only evil when we allow that to crowd our hearts in such a way that we begin to envy and be jealous and be resentful and be hateful and to have our pride injured. If we are charitable, then we look upon the things we think are the shortcomings of someone else in a way that is tolerant and kindly. We think Zion is going to be the great, peaceful community, and it surely will be. But that doesn't mean that the residents aren't going to have differing opinions. Art, literature, great thought, very often music, all the creative impulses very often are stimulated by a conflict that the person who is doing the creating is grappling with. Zion may not be a place in which there is the absence of potential for conflict, but it will be a place where the potential for conflict is resisted because of the charitable impulse to abide peaceably with one another while we work on the things that separate us, that make us different. Our differences aren't evil. Our differences are something to be considered, thought about, to be explored, to be understood. Because charity is the peaceful means of dealing with these diverse ways of understanding life, of understanding why we're here, what we're trying to do, of understanding how we can be kindly towards one another. Sometimes, the kindest thing is a rebuke. Sometimes, the kindest thing, in turn, is to carefully consider the rebuke, to not open your mouth in return, to think deeply about what was said and why it was said, and to allow the possibility that the person who expressed the rebuke did so out of love, out of kindness, out of their concern for you. Sometimes their rebuke is based on a wealth of misinformation and misunderstanding. So, instead of returning with another rebuke, telling the rebuker how stupid they are because they don't understand things, think about why they have their understanding and what can be done to overcome the gap between you and someone else. Zion is going to be, above all other things, a place that necessarily demands that people be charitable towards one another and kindly disposed to dealing with the misunderstandings, the differences of opinion, the different educational backgrounds, the different life experience backgrounds that make for different opinions and different viewpoints. All of them are valuable, assuming you will charitably allow people to be where they are and to help you understand them in their context, while they are kind enough to try and understand you in your context. See also the glossary entry, Love. 